Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider what's it like to take a complicated aspect of your family life and delve into it in academic nonfiction. More specifically, we talked to Rebecca Falkoff about her first book, which is a study of hoarding. Rebecca is an assistant professor of Italian studies at NYU. She's published on illegibility, materialism, and Elena Ferrante, and she's translated works by Italian authors. Rebecca's first book, Possessed, A Cultural History of Hoarding, was published by Cornell University Press this year, and she also performs stand-up at comedy clubs throughout the city. I don't think we have ever had a guest with such varied interests so deeply pursued, a scholar of Italian literature and culture, author of a study of hoarding, stand-up comedian. I mean, one of the many interesting topics that came up in our conversation with Rebecca was the difference between collecting and hoarding. And with that conversation in mind, I can't help thinking of Rebecca as someone who collects these fascinating passions in different rooms of her brain and sort of organizes them there. Ooh, yeah. That's such an interesting way of I hadn't thought about that. I'm kind of jealous of her. Like I want these different rooms in my brain to fill up with these interesting topics and interests. Um, But she talked with us about how hoarding or a fear that she has that she might become a hoarder, how that shapes so much of her thinking, largely because she has family members who are hoarders. It shapes how she thinks about her ability to organize her thoughts and her writing. It shapes how she thinks about her social media posts. And there's something so resonant about this topic of what we accumulate and why, how we arrange it, and when exactly it becomes too much. So even after this one conversation with Rebecca, I can feel myself thinking about things through this new lens. It's really powerful. Yeah, it is. It's that last part I keep thinking about, the fine line between collecting and hoarding. So I wonder what keeps people from crossing it? You know, was J.P. Morgan protected from being a hoarder by his wealth? I think about without all those curators who managed his vast collections, what would his basement have looked like? Yeah, it's true. Although that would have been a pretty fascinating hoard. Yes, (laughs) for sure. sure. So we talked to Rebecca about how wealth and class play a role in what's considered hoarding and also about why people hoard, its connection to mortality, why so many people hoard newspapers and all sorts of fascinating topics. Yes. And we started by talking about Rebecca's experience with hoarding in her own family. You say in your book that your father is a hoarder, as was his mother, your grandmother, who has one of the world's best names, Fontaine Maverick Falkoff. Am I pronouncing Falkoff right? I like to pronounce it as close to a swear as possible because it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Falkoff. Falkoff, that's great. Can you describe the homes of your father and your grandmother? 
Yeah. My grandmother's home, I hadn't been in her home for like maybe 15 or 20 years before she died. The last time I was in there, I was probably, I don't know, 15. And it, it smelled really bad. I don't even remember what was in there. I remember like a lot of grape Fanta, but that must just be because that was what was exciting to me as a kid when I went there. Mm-hmm. My dad's house has hundreds and hundreds of musical instruments. He's in a nursing home now. He had a stroke in October. And so my mom and my uncle and brother, sometimes me, but I get a little bit squeamish about the mouse poop. So they've been working on cleaning his house for like four months. They put in a couple hours every day. Can't really stay there for too long because none of the bathrooms work. I mean, everything is covered with dust. A lot of mouse poop, a lot of musical instruments, a lot of espresso machines, a lot of shoes, motorcycle helmets, books, papers, just a lot of stuff. And a lot of it is really interesting. When I go there, I like to just explore and look for cool things. It's like I found a an optometrist set from the 1870s, which has these lenses and frames beautifully arranged in a velvet lined wood box. There are some interesting things there and just a lot of junk and a lot of stuff. Is the reason that you hadn't been back to your grandmother's house for long, so long, is that connected to the hoarding? Well, she wouldn't let anyone in her house. Mm-hmm. She has five sons, one of whom is my father. And I think at some point, maybe in the decade before she died, they had tried to trick her into going to Maine and then they tried to clean out her house while she was gone, but that didn't really work. So I think some of her sons had been in there before she died, but yeah, it wasn't, you couldn't go there. And is it your sense that she stopped people from going there in part because she didn't want anyone interfering in that way? I think so. Yeah. I wouldn't either. Let's be honest. Yeah. But there is this thing where I don't, you know, it's not really about shame. My dad has a lot of pride in the things that he has. Mm -hmm. So hoarding is obviously a subject that fascinates you. You've written this book and you had a blog on Tumblr about hoarding for many years. Can you say a little bit about how, what role hoarding has played in your thinking over your lifetime? Has it affected your relationship with objects? And do you think it affected? affects the way that you think about life and problems? I mean, I think to some extent, my book is very neurotic because it's an academic book and it's, you know, it's divided into a chapter about the history of psychiatry and about the flea markets and about environmental thinking. So it has the appearance of being a very academic book, but it's also just a performance of my neuroses and fear of turning into a hoarder. I don't have a lot of things, partly because I move around a lot. I was in Berkeley for 10 years and then New York and now Maine. And so I'm not really a hoarder, although maybe I would be if I stayed put for long enough. But I worry that, I mean, I think everybody who writes struggles with how to organize their writing. You know, it's exciting to have ideas and difficult to arrange them into um, a clear form. But whenever I struggle with writing, I worry that it's because there's something broken in my mind that sort of condemns me to be a hoarder. And that actually connects to what I wanted to ask you about your blog, because you say that your Tumblr blog came to feel like a form of hoarding. Can you say a little bit more about that? So there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the real overarching organization is when you happen to post things. So it's a chronological 
order, but it's a chronological order in relation to you. But one thing that medical research has found recently is that hoarders tend to move things around and then get distracted and then move them around more. And in the end, the space would be organized not according to any like thematic rationale, but based on the most recent contact with the hoarder. So that process is called churning. And I think it makes for some interesting dynamics in narrative, but also it's kind of typical of the way that we experience content in the digital age and the way that we produce content in the digital age. Yeah, that's so interesting. That is so interesting. What's the impulse behind hoarding? What's the need or the desire that it's filling? I wish I had an answer to that. I wrote this book, but I don't really have an answer. I mean, sometimes I think it's one answer is that basically all the pathologies that we have with people, we can also have with like objects. We can use them just the way we use people to act out our neuroses. So there are all sorts of rationales. The times when hoarding acquires a patina of rationality would be, for example, the depression era or war survivors rationale of like, you never know when you're not going to have enough or things might come in handy, or there's a lot of sort of hedging against an uncertain future. Mm. And I think that that's a pretty good reason to hoard. I mean, it's not a good reason to like have so much stuff that you get crushed by it and die. Right. But there's nothing wrong with saving things for a future when you're not sure what the future will look like. The basic idea of hoarding is that value changes in time. And so anytime you have the possibility of not knowing what the future will look like, there's some impulse to hoard. Case in point being all the toilet paper. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow toilet paper became a symbol of safety for all of us. It was the thing that we needed. Right. Is it fair to say that what causes a person to become a hoarder is some form of anxiety? Or do we know what causes someone to become a hoarder? Yeah, perhaps some form of anxiety, but there are all sorts of other ways that people hoard, like sometimes the sort of pain of having to give up something that has sentimental value, or simply the sense of comfort of being surrounded by things that you like to look at. Sometimes there is this sentimentality that makes the hoarded objects look more like souvenirs, or a kind of aesthetic appreciation of the feeling or environment of having things around you. Yeah. And maybe even like dwelling in a cave-like place. You said that hoarding is both a means to disavow mortality and a mortal threat to the practitioners. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think if you collect and save hundreds of broken violins, thinking that one day you'll clean out a room and have that be your workshop and that you'll fix all these violins. And if you do that when you're 70 years old and you've been doing that for 20 years and you've never fixed a violin, I mean, it is a disavowal of of mortality, not even in the idea that these objects will survive you, but in the idea that your life could never be so long as to find time to fix hundreds of violins, especially if you never take the time to fix a violin. Mm-hmm. And it is a mortal threat to the hoarder. I mean, there have been in the last 20 years, a number of house fires. Firefighters call hoarded spaces collier mansions. It's very dangerous for a firefighter to try to get into a hoarded space. Also, people can fall and not be able to get up because things fall on top of them. 
so it's dangerous. I mean, especially as people get older and more and more things accumulate around them, it becomes more dangerous. I can see that. You also mentioned in the book that many hoarders who are forced to clean out their spaces fall into a terrible depression and even die sometimes after that. That is something that Randy Frost and Gail Steckety have found. And there's a documentary by Martin Hampton about a collector who has to live in a nursing home and becomes very depressed and just seems to think that everything is hopeless. To some extent, it's a life's work. And even if it looks like a horrible mess of broken junk, every object in my father's house is something that he's found and had the thrill of finding and then brought home. Even like there's machinery there. I don't know how he got a drill press to the second floor of his house, but like everything in there is something that he's lugged home probably by himself. I don't know how he did it. It's painful to be there surrounded by it when you just feel like you wouldn't even know how to begin cleaning it. There's so much and it's so filthy and it's, I don't know. I mean, Sometimes I'm glad for my allergies because I start wheezing when I'm in there and don't have to stay for too long. Um, But no, it's a life's work, but it's also a burden. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think that's some of it. Yeah. So complicated. What is the line between collecting and hoarding? How do we know when a desire for things becomes pathological? Well, um, I sort of answer that question by avoiding it. And by saying that hoarding is a fetish discourse, which means that it's predicated on clashing perspectives about value. So in order to have a hoard, you need to have two ideas about value. And one needs to be, this is not okay. And one needs to be, but wait, these are important things. But there needs to be a sort of tension between two different perspectives. Otherwise, there's no hoard. There's a reason we call the stuff we own belongings. I mean, all our crap, it gives us a sense of who we are and our place in the world. I have so much sympathy for people who hoard. All that stuff that other people say is junk or that maybe isn't junk but is causing you harm in some way, all of it is precious to the person who collects it. It's a mental illness. But I think we can all relate to the power of sentimental value and how casting off objects we once cherished can feel a little like death. I know exactly what you're saying. I remember this moment with my mother-in-law who really didn't collect much at all and was not a very sentimental person. But I remember so vividly once she dropped something like a little tchotchke and and it fell and it broke and she started to cry, which was Mm. really unexpected. It was out of the blue. And she just said that it was something that she'd gotten at a particular moment on a vacation and it I think surprised even her how much it meant to her. Yeah. Jim Mustick expressed this so well as he expresses everything so well in one of his recent newsletter. Jim's the author of A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. And he was our very first guest on the podcast in episode five. And here's how he described what it felt like to go through decades of objects while he was cleaning out his home of 25 years in preparation for a move. Even though this house has been a wonderful home for our family, it's not leaving the house itself that is unsettling. What gives us pause is saying goodbye, or the pretend goodbye of storage, to the expansive assemblance of objects that have animated our personal passions. 
Every book and skillet is redolent of flavors and meditations, appetites and apprehensions that have shaped us through the years. All of us live our lives in moods as much as rooms, and the furnishing of those moods most congenial to us in carefully and sometimes whimsically fabricated assemblages is a source of persistent gladness and inspiration. Forced by time and space to edit these accumulated moods through the culling of our collections, we're brought up short by the sense of an ending, no matter how benevolent, even liberating, the moment seems. Isn't it remarkable how often Jim's newsletters seem to say perfectly something that we're thinking about? It's uncanny, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. So Rebecca mentioned that firefighters called hoarded spaces Collier's Mansion. And I thought maybe we should tell the story of Collier's Mansion in case others like me hadn't heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Here's an example of how she describes it in her book. On the morning of March 21st, 1947, New York Police Headquarters received a call reporting that there was a dead body in the Collier Mansion. The caller did not need to give the address. The rundown 2078 Fifth Avenue Brownstone and the eccentric brothers who lived there, Homer and Langley, were local legends. Neighborhood children insisted that the place was haunted. Performing for a crowd of hundreds of gawkers, the first responders tried to get in through the front door and a basement grate. Unsteady barricades of newspapers blocked both. Eventually, they were able to enter through a second-floor window. There, they found the emaciated corpse of Homer, nestled into an alcove amid piles of debris. He had become paraplegic in his final years. The autopsy determined that he had died of starvation-induced heart failure. A frenzied search began for Langley. It continued for another two and a half weeks, expanding into nine states. Meanwhile, on Fifth Avenue, the public administrator led preliminary efforts to clear out the townhouse. Cats scurried about, lured by shelter or mice, or perhaps the queer odor whose source was discovered on April 8th to be the decomposing rat-nod corpse of Langley. The younger Collier brother had been dead for about a month. He was bringing food to Homer when he set off one of the many booby traps he had rigged to deter intruders. He was crushed by bales of newspaper and died of asphyxiation. The clean-out of the Collier home yielded a two-headed fetus, preserved in formaldehyde, an old x-ray machine, 14 pianos, a rowboat, grandfather clocks, and a Model T. But the real weight of the hoard was in the paper. Newspapers, thousands and thousands of newspapers were everywhere, stuffed under the furniture, stacked in unsteady piles against the walls. Paper is heavy and flammable. It makes hordes dense and more dangerous. It was the paper that buried Langley alive. His body was discovered under a suitcase, three metal bread boxes, and bales of newspapers. It's an extraordinary story. And the Collier brothers weren't alone in hoarding newspapers. We asked Rebecca what it is about newspapers that makes them so appealing to many hoarders. This is one of those kind of sublime objects of the hoard. Newspapers come out in predictable intervals, and in that sense, they are very good at registering time. And so to see them pile up is also a visualization of time's passage that may make it more striking for people who don't hoard newspapers. I mean, also, it's funny because yesterday's news is an idiom of uselessness. Yeah. Outdated newspapers are really synonymous with junk. Yeah. 
or not, not even junk because junk could be fixed up. Junk has uh, potential in a way that I don't think newspapers often do. Hoarders must see value in newspapers. I think so. Or they see, I mean, most I've heard of hoarders thinking, well, there might be something in there and I don't want to miss that opportunity. I haven't read it yet. I might want to read it. So in that sense, it's more along the lines of a disavowal of death. Is there a threshold of wealth beyond which you're just hoarding money? So are all billionaires economic hoarders? And you know, just wondering what your thought is about that. I think that's a great question because part of what hoarding discourse does, it makes an individual pathology of something that is part of the logic of our capitalist system. I mean, yes, billionaires shouldn't exist probably. And being a billionaire is kind of hoarding money, but the kind of hoarding that has been pathologized today has to do with material impediments and money is liquid. Yeah. So yes, it's the same logic, but actually it's almost as though we have collectively decided to demonize the one who is suffering anyway and give the billionaire a pass. Mm -hmm. And maybe even admire the billionaire. Yeah. And then conversely, with people who are extremely, extremely stingy, is there a hoarding impulse there? Yeah. The miser is an important precursor to the hoarder. Also, to some extent, there's the pathologization of hoarding right now as, um, you know, there's this inordinate amount of consumer debt and student loan debt. And I don't go as deep into that as I wish I did, but I think credit debt hoarding mm -hmm. could be really productively explored further. It struck me reading your book that a lot of the thinking that's been done historically, I mean, going back, as you said, to the, the late 18th century, a lot of that thinking has been done by men. And I wonder, is there a feminist lens through which to view hoarding? And if so, do we learn different things? Yeah, I think that insofar as the hoarder begins to look like all sorts of celebrated types of modernity, like the artist, the detective, the flanner, the rag picker, all these forms of genius of which the hoarder is a failure. It's more common to see men in the guise of failed genius hoarder. Often in cultural representations of hoarding women, it has something to do with uh, children, like either they had a child who died or they couldn't have children or, you know, the usual stereotypes about like obsession and passion from women is in some relation to children and in men is in some relation to genius. It is a truly sad statement that we somehow managed to be misogynistic in every possible context. Sad and familiar, of course, <laughs> right? right? It makes sense that the way we think about hoarding reflects our cultural values. And it comes up in other ways too, like how we think about class. On the one hand, we celebrate people who are passion-driven, you know, the obsessive artist, the athlete whose whole life is their sport. And on the other hand, hoarding is bad and being a collector is something for dilettantes. It feels like there are a lot of inherent conflicts, or at least illogic, in what's considered hoarding and what's not, and what we admire and what we don't. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about. Yeah. 
I mean, if you told me you had 20,000 books in your house, I would think that is incredibly cool. But if you told me you had 20,000 books in your small New York City apartment and that packed shelves covered every wall and books were stacked on every surface, including the floor. All right. I, I'd still think that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you, but I think we have a particular worldview, right? I, I remember so vividly when we were putting our apartment on the market and I warned the realtor that I collect books and he was so relieved when he actually saw our apartment. He was like, I thought you were a hoarder. So he had an appalled reaction to the thought that I owned a lot of books. So not a lifelong friend. I take yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. And that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at Book Dreams Pod and on Instagram at Book Dreams Podcast. You can find Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca R. Falkoff. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Book Dreams is part of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Go, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and